English 256. I'll say it again for the people listening in. Uh, go beautiful golden leaves outside our window after, like, be just really nice. Beautiful campus when it wants to be. When it wants to be. For those of you who are in your first semester here in a couple of months, not even in a couple of months, maybe in like a couple of days, but certainly in a month, just all hell breaks loose around here. As those of you who have been around know. Who's been around? Cat's been around. Anybody else? Not in the first semester? Oh, you must tell them how terrible it's going to be. We got lucky last year. We did. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't bad at all. And then we came back from break and it was bad. And it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The beginning of the spring was terrible. Uh, a lot of snow. A lot of snow to be had. But something to look forward to. At least we'll get a little bit of fall here. Right? Anyways, enough weather talk. William Athos. Uh, like we did on Monday, uh, I like for this book, and then maybe going forward, I don't know, uh, but definitely for this book, because the language is kind of difficult, because it's such a strange text in a lot of ways, I kind of preloaded the forum with some questions, some thoughts, some concerns, had you guys talk through them, and then what we're going to do in class, right, if you listened in on Monday, you'll know this, but um, even if not, what we're going to do in class is kind of go over those questions, talk about some passages, um, kind of steer our way through this text. What I'm really kind of interested in, apart from the questions that I asked, is like Apis's time in the military is kind of interesting to me, even though I didn't bring it up very much in the question. So maybe we can kind of like factor that in as well. But any initial thoughts about the text, concerns, issues that we want to bring up here? Hey, Luke. Uh, good. Uh, OK, let's start it off then. So question, the first question I asked you, so, actually, even before we get to that first question, the thing that we talked about most on Monday that seems to me to be such an important way of thinking through this text and then has bigger implications for how we think about Native American literature and cultural expression more generally, that big thing that we came to at the end of class on Monday was this idea that Apis finds in Methodism what? Like, a way to account for his very fractured and unstable identity. So we talked about, on Monday, how Apis is kind of, we might say in a really cliched way, living between two worlds. Like he has a foot in this kind of like wider settler world, and he has a foot in this native world. And the kind of crisis that he narrates over the course of what he read for Monday, and also today, is this inability to really have a stable, solid sense of himself. But what we got to on Monday by the end of class, if you were here or if you're listening in, what we got to on Monday by the end of class was this idea, right, that hey Christian, this idea that in Methodism, Apis finds a way to comfortably settle into his native identity. So he takes something from settler culture, Methodism, of course, it's a Western religious paradigm. He takes something from settler culture, but that thing that he takes from settler culture, that Methodism, allows him to be more comfortable as a native person. Why? Does anybody remember this? What about Methodism allows him to be more comfortable as a native person? What is it about Methodism in particular? Yeah. Then what, like Protestantism or Catholicism, right? So it's less about speaking off a of paper, it's more about um, just kind of expressing the will of God 
through you as the will of God reaches you. It's more about experience and expression about the spoken word as opposed to the written, which aligns with our sense of native culture as kind of oral, right? As privileging the oral. Yeah, what else? Didn't he uh, mention something along the lines of how he felt like the Methodist, I think it was, he said, lived through the Holy Spirit more or something like that, and that's why he liked, um, that's why he found himself, you know, navigating towards that more. Yeah, it's just a good reinforcement of this point, the idea being that, like, Protestants or certainly Catholics even, like, they kind of read their beliefs off the page in a rote and repetitive way, whereas the Methodists, like, they experience their beliefs, right? People are weeping and screaming and joyous in their mass, as opposed to, like, somber and just listening to this person give you a lecture back. Do you think that he finds, like, he, like, feels more comfortable since he is a Native American? He feels like, oh, since, you know, my culture is, you know, storytelling and all that, he kind of finds that connection? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's precisely the idea that we're working towards, right? This idea that in Methodism, Apis finds connections back to a Native culture that he was never really fully connected to mm -hmm. by virtue of his early childhood history. Right. Right, so this idea that, yeah, Methodism provides for him a way to kind of grasp that Native culture because there are things about Methodism, right? This idea that, like, it's not just about words, it's about actions. This idea that, like, it's more about kind of like extemporaneous speech as opposed to writing. There are things about Methodism that allow him to kind of align himself with the nativeness that he wants but that he never really had full purchase on. One other thing about Methodism that kind of aligns with his identity as, in, as Native, yeah. It kind of matches his like social status at the time because Methodism was almost like suppressed in the society at the time, just as Native Americans were. Yeah, so Methodists were seen in kind of the hierarchy of like Christian, Protestant, religious denominations. Methodists were seen as lower class people, as opposed to let's say Presbyterian. Lutherans, Calvinists, something like this. Methodists were seen as lower, right? And so, for that reason, a lot of indigent or otherwise marginalized people were drawn to Methodism because Methodism was an inclusive religious community in a way that Presbyterianism, according to Apis, right, was not. Right? So Methodism allowed for Native people, but also for African American people and others, to kind of come into the fold of Christianity in a way that was welcoming and inclusive, very, very different than, let's say, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, whatever, however you want to call it. Okay, so what Methodism allows Apis to do is kind of like grasp that sense of himself as a native person, that sense of himself that he, you know, knows is always there, but has been quite literally, in some respect, beaten out of him, like if we want to go back to his the grandmother experience. He has no real connection back to native culture. He has that biological connection to native culture, to native to native um, identity, but he has no connection to native culture. Um, and Methodism allows him a way into that. But, of course, like, you know, we're only a third of the way through the book, so it can't be like, oh, everything was great, perfect, awesome, bye. Right? No, this is a life story, just like everybody's life stories, that has ups and downs, right? Um, peaks and valleys, as it were. So when we open up this portion of what we read for, for today, for Wednesday, he's like, ah, not everything can be sunny all the time. Like, they stopped having, they stopped allowing me, basically, to go to the Methodist church. And as a result of that, his master disallowing him from going, right, he starts to kind of spiral into this depression. Um, he starts to kind of question his faith, and as a result, to question his identity. So he says, 
he's being kind of discriminated against by the chambermaid who's like throwing him down a flight of stairs. And he says, in all this trouble, the Lord was with me of a truth. I was happy in the enjoyment of his love. The abuse heaped on me was in consequence of my being a Methodist. And so he's getting abused. He's being kind of dispirited by all these experiences. But at this moment, at least, he's still kind of holding strong. But that changes, right? He loses his faith in really important and interesting ways. So he says, just going a little bit forward, I was flogged several times very unjustly for what the maid said respecting me. Flogged, we know, is just beaten. Right? A great word that we should bring back into contemporary use. I'm going to flog you. It's a shame that it's fallen out. I mean, flogging, I like that word. flogging is great. It's a great word. I mean, the practice, no. I don't condone, but the word I like. I was flogged several times very unjustly for what the maid said respecting me. My treatment in this respect was so bad that I could not brook it. I couldn't handle it. That's another great word that should come back. You can't brook something. Anyways, and in an evil hour, I listened to the suggestions of the devil. He put it into my head to abscond to leave my master. Then it was that I began to lose sight of religion and God. So what is the kind of proximate cause of him losing his faith here? And then what are the bigger causes? Can we talk through that? What's the kind of close cause of him losing his faith? And what are the bigger ones? His own belief is being put into question. Yeah, like, that's... Okay, go ahead. So, like, his master won't let him go. And then, so, he isn't able to go to these um, meetings and learn through them. And so he's just, he's, he's like behind, I guess. Um, no, not behind, but he's, he's, he's basically thinking, you know, if I can't go and practice, why would I stick with it? You know what I mean? It's like if you play a sport and you can't, you're allowed to go practice your sport, why would you play the sport in the first place? Right, yeah, so he's kind of like not being able to put into, it's a good word, practice his faith. And if he's not able to put into practice his faith, he's, feeling as if he needs to get away from that situation, yeah, awesome. So then would the, would the proximate cause be um, he can't handle the persecution anymore, like getting flogged and all that? Well, okay, so that's actually the bigger cause, like getting flogged, being persecuted against, being discriminated against. Those are the big causes that cause him to lose his faith. The closest cause is that he leaves his master. Right? Because he directly draws the idea that he begins to lose sight of religion and God from leaving his master. So that just like one little sin of kind of leaving the person who is in control of him is what he thinks is bringing him away from faith. But we know from what he's narrated to us that that's just the kind of last motivating event. Right? All of the things that have drawn up to that moment, like Austin says, all of those moments are what cause him to the flogging, the discrimination, the inability to practice his faith, right, cause him to turn to the devil and he begins to lose sight of religion and God. And he turns to what? What's the kind of institution in the absence of religion? So interesting and actually has contemporary context to that Christian I think you talked about in your post. In the absence of religion as an institution that provides him with an identity, he loses his faith in the absence of religion as an institution that provides him with an identity, what institution does he turn to? The military? Yeah, he turns to the army. And I think, Christian, you yeah. mentioned in your post in a really interesting way, like, that's kind of still something that happens today. Yeah, people just don't know what to do with themselves, and they just kind of, they join the branch of the military to try right. to, you know, find something. Yeah. And that's not to denigrate service, yeah. 
military service, not at all, but the idea here is, is precisely right, I think, in the 19th century and in the 21st. It's often the case that people who are, particularly young men, who are kind of like just looking for meaning, right. looking for purpose, looking for something to identify with, they often join the military. It's not a bad thing. It's actually it's a really good thing. It's the idea is like, well, it's good insofar as like militaries are good. But like <laughs> the idea of like identifying with something and identifying with a purpose is something that has a 21st century relevance entirely. It might be interesting for all of you to know that, um, proportionally speaking, Native American people enlist in the military at far higher rates than any other ethnic or cultural identity in the United States. That is to say that percentage-wise, there are more Native American people in the United States military than any other why do you think that is? Same reason he is. Yeah, you know, why? They've been, they've been constantly moved around, expected to do A, and then they're told, wait, no, do B. So they're trying to find purpose. Yeah, they're trying to find purpose, and that inability to have purpose initially in a young man's life, what the suggestion here is from Apis, but also the suggestion in a 21st century context is like, they don't have economic opportunity. They don't have a kind of clear grounding in their traditions because those traditions have been taken from them, right? All of these ideas that, like, Apis uses to justify his movement to the military are still the same ones that happened in the 21st century. So while we can think of, like, the kind of high percentage of Native people in the United States military in the 21st century as a kind of, like, evidence for Native patriotism, and in some senses it is, right? Definitely, in some sense it is. We can also think about it as evidence for Native oppression, right? That That is kind of where they have to go because a lot of other avenues have been shut down as a result of the circumstances that are kind of endemic to Native life in the 21st century. Again, that's not to denigrate the military, it's just to suggest that like that is something that's open to particularly kind of like um, oppressed or marginalized young men, right? It's a way to find purpose and meaning in one's life when other avenues for finding purpose and meaning are closed off to you, right? Apis's other avenues for finding purpose and meaning in his life have been closed off to him. He can no longer practice his Methodist faith. He's being physically abused on account of it. He has no real clear grasp in this moment because he's lost his Methodist faith. He has no real clear grasp or purchase on his native culture. And so he's kind of just floating out there in the breeze. And just like a lot of young men do today in the 21st century, they enlist to find that purpose, to find that mission. But as a result of, you know, enlisting to find that purpose or find that mission, you, you change. And Apis changes as well. So he says, now, although I made no profession of religion, yet I could not bear to hear sacred things spoken of lightly, or the sacred name of God blasphemed. The blasphemy means cursed. And I often spoke to the soldiers about it, and in general they listened attentively to what I had to say. I did not tell them that I had, that I had ever made a profession of religion. What does profession of religion here mean? It doesn't mean that, like, he took a job in religion. Profession means like to profess it. He's never said that he's a Christian person. I did not tell them that I had ever made a profession of religion. In a little time, I became almost as bad as any of them, could drink rum, play cards, and act as wickedly as any. So what happens to him here? Initially, when he enlists in the service, and he's talking to other soldiers, he's trying to do what? But that falls away. What happens to him? 
Doesn't he get a drinking problem? Yeah, he becomes even more excessively an alcoholic than he had been earlier. Oftentimes when he declines and he becomes depressed, he goes to alcohol. And that's happened earlier in the text, but once he gets into the military, that becomes even a further issue, right? He's trying early on in this experience in the military to continue to keep his faith. But he's trying to actually bring people to his side. He's trying to say, like, hey, I don't really appreciate the way that you're kind of, like, talking about God and faith. But even in this short little paragraph, you can see the transition that he makes, right? Where he's at a peak, right? He's kind of understanding himself in a particularly religious way, but then he falls down into this valley, and it was only a little time before he starts drinking, playing cards, sign of the devil, people, still today. Playing cards, jeez. <laughs> Pitch, terrible, go straight to hell. Um, playing cards and acting as wickedly as any, right? He, he loses his faith, right? And his inability to have that stable sense of identity is because he can't really find that institution to cling to, right? He can't really find that institution to cling to, and this one that he's enlisted in, enlisted in now is kind of terrifying to him. Right? The military is kind of terrifying to him. It's at once energetic and exciting, but it's also kind of terrifying. I think Kat mentioned that scene where, like, two men are, did you, where two men are put up for execution? I don't know. Some, somebody did. I'm not, I'm not sure who it was. Somebody mentioned a scene in a post where the two men kind of deserters or whomever they are in the military are put up for execution and one is killed and the other is spared. And this has like a profound effect on Athos, right? Because he sees like the kind of, the, the craziness of his situation and of the experience. So the point being out of all of this is that he, at the beginning of what we read for today, seems to have this kind of stable sense of identity through Methodism. And when Methodism is taken from him, we see him lurching and grabbing and grasping toward other institutions that might provide him with that sense of identity. But none really do. Right? The army doesn't. And then his menial jobs that he takes up after he leaves the army don't either. But by the end of this class today, we'll actually talk about what quote-unquote institution brings him back into the fold. What stabilizes this really kind of terrible narrative where he's kind of lurching from uh, salvation and faith to despondency and depression over and over and over again, like the peaks and the valleys, what stabilizes things for Apis. We'll get to that um, by the end of class. Okay, uh, next slide for people who are kind of listening in. This is a long quote, right? And a lot of people talked about it um, in the forum post, but I think it's really interesting to kind of make light of and, and think through. So I'm gonna read this first paragraph from the sixth chapter and ask you guys to talk about it. Like, what is he saying? What is he arguing? He says, no doubt there are many good people in the United States who would not trample upon the rights of the poor, but there are many others who are willing to roll in their coaches, coaches is like, like equivalent of cars, right? are willing to roll in their coaches upon the tears and blood of the poor and unoffending natives, those who are ready at all times to speculate on the Indians and defraud them out of their rightful possessions. Let the poor Indian attempt to resist the encroachments of his white neighbors what a hue and cry is instantly raised against him. It has been considered as a trifling thing for the whites to make war on the Indians for the purpose of driving them from their country and taking possession thereof. This was, in their estimation, all right. 
as it helped to extend the territory and enriched some individuals. But let the thing be changed. He opens up a hypothetical here. Or really is it a hypothetical, given the context, right? Suppose an overwhelming army should march into the United States for the purpose of subduing it and enslaving its citizens. How quick would they fly to arms, gather in multitudes around the Tree of Liberty, and contend for their rights with the last drop of their blood? And should the enemy succeed, would they not eventually rise and endeavor to regain liberty? And who would blame them for it? What is he saying here? This is a really kind of profound and interesting kind of argument that he's making. What is he saying? He's saying, yeah, there are many good people in the United States, right? But there are just as many who would do what? Take advantage. Take advantage of what? I was going to say, do essentially what they did to natives and coerce them and take their land and abuse the power and responsibility that they had. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting rhetorical move that he makes at the beginning of this paragraph where he says, like, no, there's a lot of good people. But let's all admit that there's some bad people as well. Right? So he's kind of at once like patting his audience on the head and then with the other hand kind of like sticking the knife in their back. It's a kind of an interesting rhetorical move. He, he doesn't just say like all Americans are shit. He says like, no, of course. He's, he's proposing an idea that we also, we, we have to take as reasonable. He's like, no, of course there are good people, but there are others who have no shame, right? Who would very happily oppress and discriminate. But he says that what happens if native people who are being oppressed and discriminated against, what if they rise up and try to resist? What does he say is going to happen? Military action? Yeah, basically, like, what a hue and cry is instantly raised against him. Right, the idea here is that what he's kind of criticizing is that white Americans, that settlers, will discriminate and oppress native people, but if native people try to resist that discrimination or oppression, Settlers come back and raise a stink about it, essentially. Right? It has been considered as a trifling thing, a little thing, a thing of no consequence, for the whites to make war on the Indians for the purpose of driving them from their country and taking possession thereof. This was, in their estimation, all right, as it helped extend the territory and enriched some individuals. Basically, what he's saying is that, from the settler perspective, the oppression and discrimination against Native people, the violence meted out to Native people, is okay on account of the effects of that violence, right? The extension of territory and other violence, right? But, he says, consider a hypothetical. What would happen if the rules were reversed? What does he say would happen if the rules were reversed? If somebody actually came into the United States with an overwhelming force, let's sit, what he's basically saying is, let's put the United States in the position of a native nation, what would happen? Yeah. He was saying that the reaction would be like unfathomable. Like it would just be like, like the whites can't even like picture it because they think so lowly of like the natives. Oh right, right. Like he, they settlers can't even um, contemplate the idea that native people would resist. But even before we get to that point, what is he saying about what settlers would do? Oh, he's saying like they would like fight back and like cause a whole war just to like get their territory back and stuff. And he's saying it would be completely justifiable. Yeah. Right? He's saying it would be entirely legitimate if the roles were reversed. From the perspective of the Southerners, if the roles were reversed, it would be entirely legitimate to fight back and resist. To rally around the tree of liberty and contend for their rights with their last drop of blood. 
So what he's pointing us toward, which is kind of what Austin is getting at, what he's pointing us toward is this kind of profound hypocrisy at the heart of settlers. Because settlers know that if they were tasked with defending their land and their rights, they would fight tooth and nail to the death. But if the natives do the same, they what? They're a laughed at question of like, why would you fight back? We're in the right here, you guys are wrong. Right, they're criticized, right? The native people are criticized, and their resistance is seen as unjustified. And he says, who would blame them for it? Right. So what he's talking about here is this kind of like profound hypocrisy at the heart of something like colonization, where if the roles were reversed, of course settler populations would defend themselves but they expect native populations not to defend themselves at all. That's kind of crazy, Apis is suggesting to us implicitly, right? But the position of this paragraph is really interesting, right? Because it's one paragraph at the beginning of chapter six, and then he goes back into his discussion of his life, right? It's just this one paragraph that just kind of sits out here. It's a philosophical musing, one paragraph. And then he's just like, okay, never mind. I'm back to like Hartford, I'm 16, it's the spring. So what's the purpose of this? Like, why do you think he fits this in here? I'm discussing you to speculate. There's no particularly right answer. But why does he introduce these ideas, particularly in this moment in the narrative? Why do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's to, to speak to whites, to like um, get them to think critically about their, like, how their mindset and about how they perceive, I don't know, like the treatment of natives. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And actually, it kind of um, corresponds really nicely with a couple of the things we talked about with the Thomas King reading, right? It's one thing to just provide your personal experience. This is what happened to me, right? But when you actually say, like, okay, I have my personal experience, and then I'm going to abstract out from it, and then I'm going to generalize from it, I'm going to universalize from that, that personal experience into something more abstract, that kind of reaches home in a different way. Right, because what's being suggested is that like Apis's experience are not just his, they're the experiences of many, right? That we can kind of universalize and think through in a more generalized fashion. So maybe it's a persuasive tactic, a rhetorical one. It's also really interesting to note that he makes this claim right at the moment when he's narrating his experience and participation in a war. Like one of the only wars to have taken place on American soil after the revolution, the War of 1812, where the British actually get to DC and burn it to the ground, right? So it's really interesting that he's talking about this quote unquote hypothetical, where an overwhelming force comes in and tries to take over settlers. It's actually happening in the moment of the narrative. Right? So it's not so hypothetical, right? So I guess what he's also suggesting is like, this could definitely happen. So we should be prepared for it, right? I think it's the, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, prior to Pearl Harbor, right? The War of 1812 is the last time that a foreign adversary has attacked the United States within its territorial borders. Could be wrong, but I think that's it, prior to Pearl Harbor, right? So like there is a military conflict happening here where settlers are being overrun by an overwhelming force. That's kind of another important point to the argument that he's making. In any case, basically what he's trying to think, or try, trying to get us to think about is that there's a hypocrisy at the core of colonization. 
that like we basically as settlers expect native people to just roll over and accept what settlers are doing. And he's saying that if the roles were reversed, settlers would of course not do that. They would not roll over. They would fight tooth and nail until the last drop of blood was shed. So why don't you expect that of native people as well? He doesn't answer that question, right? He doesn't actually give us the answer, why don't you, why don't you expect that of native people? But we can kind of speculate or think through it. Why do settlers raise such a hue and cry when native people fight back? Why is it not seen as natural or inevitable when native people resist? Yeah, they've internalized their oppression, right? But yeah, the idea, I think that's exactly right, or one way to think about why settlers would perceive of native people's resistance as illegitimate. The idea is that like settlers perceive of themselves as inherently superior, right? And so like the extension of their territory and the kind of uh, oppression of native people seems not like um, questionable or contestable, it just seems right, right? Apis is kind of actually pointing us here toward this idea of manifest destiny. Anybody heard that in like American history class? It's kind of, this is way before the concept becomes a concept, right? But he's kind of pointing us towards that idea that like settlers believe it's essentially their birthright to take over, right? To extend their territory. And when resistance comes to them, they don't expect it, run one, and they think it's unjustifiable too because they think they're divinely ordained to take over the continent. Right, so Apis is kind of anticipating Manifest Destiny a little bit here, too. Anyways, I just think it's a really notable paragraph because of its positioning and because of how it takes us out of the story in an interesting way. But any other thoughts on this? Okay, two more slides, but they're all the same question. This is a really important place for us to get to today as we anticipate the end of the text. Okay, so... Apis is kind of in these peaks and valleys, he's losing his religion, he's gaining it back, he's losing it again. Throughout the sixth chapter, after that first paragraph, he does a series of itinerant and menial tasks, right? He just kind of takes up odd jobs across the Northeast. He's, he's looking, he's searching for fulfillment and stability, but he doesn't really seem to find that until what? Okay, this is a really interesting point, and it's kind of subtle, but really notable. He says, when I left the army, I had not a shilling in my pocket, I depended upon the precarious bounty of the inhabitants. Basically, he like begged and asked people who lived around where he was, precarious bounty of the inhabitants, until I reached the place where some of my brethren dwelt. When Apis uses the word brethren in this text, what does it always refer to? Can I pick up on this? Native American brethren? Yeah, when he uses the word brethren, he is always talking about Native people. So he's left the army, and he's kind of just like bumping around, essentially upstate New York and into New England, but at this point, essentially upstate New York, he's bumping around, and he runs into a native community, right? And he says that he depended on the precarious bounty of the inhabitants until he reached a place where some of his brethren have dwelt, and then he kind of settles down a little bit in this place where there's a native population. It's not his native population. It's not the Pequots, right? He's not in New England yet. He's in upstate New York, but he settles down because he feels an affinity with these 
brethren, with these native people. He says, with this situation, I was much pleased. My work was light. I had very little to do except carrying firewood. I often went with them on hunting excursions. And besides, my brethren were all around me. And it therefore seemed like home. So what is he saying here? What about the presence of native people? What does the presence of native people do for Abus? It gives him a sense of belonging. That yeah. people that look like him, act like him, and have similar, maybe like societal conflicts as him, and he connects with them. Yeah, this last point is really interesting and notable in light of something that comes in this in the last passage on this slide. They have similar kind of similar society, something he's familiar with, something that he knows, right? Again. He's searching for an institution here that provides him with identity. His Methodism has been taken from him. The army has not been a good fit for him, let's say. Right? It hasn't really worked out for him to give him a purpose and a mission. And so he's just floating, picking up odd jobs here and there, moving from like Troy to Albany to the whatever, Utica. Shout out to Utica in this text. Anybody been to Utica? Yeah, you've been to Utica? Going to the Utica Zoo this weekend. Not my choice. <laughs> I'll tell you how it is, though, next week. He's just floating around, right? He's floating around, and he finds a kind of new institution here that we might say, again, stabilizes and grounds him. And that new institution that he finds is that he finds a native community. And when he finds that native community, his text really changes, not only in terms of the content, but I also want to suggest that the level of the language and like what he starts to look at and what becomes important and notable and meaningful for him. So if we look at this last passage on the slide, he says he's kind of with the native people at this point. He's with his brethren. He says, there was also in the neighborhood a rock that had the appearance of being hollowed out by the hand of a skillful artificer. Through this rock wound a narrow stream of water. It had a most beautiful and romantic appearance. And I could not but admire the wisdom of God and the order, regularity, and beauty of creation. I then turned my eyes to the forest, and it seemed alive with its sons and daughters. There appeared to be the utmost order and regularity in their encampment. Such a cool passage here in thinking about what is happening to Apis at this moment as he begins to encounter more forthrightly his brethren. Okay? He sees this rock. It's got like a little hollow hole in it. And there's water in it. And there's a stream flowing out of it. And he's like, oh, that's beautiful. Damn. That's really, really nice. He's kind of having this sublime moment here. He's like impressed by this beautiful sight. I would suggest to you that this is like really, really distinctive and notable for Apis's language. Do you recall, even since the beginning of the text, any other moment where he's like, astounded by the beauty of the world. Hell no, just the opposite, right? Yeah. When he's in the forest, prior to this point, what happens to him? We talk about it on Monday. He gets frightened by the sight of his native people. Yeah, the forest. He perceived native people in the forest, and so he's aligning earlier in the text the forest with like the devil. Like, being out in the woods and in nature is, like, the worst place you could be for Avis earlier in the text. The only time he really talks about nature or the natural world at all earlier in the text is to suggest that it's a place 
of profound discomfort and unsettlement. Right? Whereas now, when he's with his native brethren, not scared of people he perceives to be native, but actually with native people, he thinks it's beautiful. And he admires the wisdom of God and the order, regularity, and beauty of creation. So his kind of frame of mind around his faith and around God seems to change here in a really interesting way. Yeah. He also kind of, you don't have it up here, but he connects his native people through the scripture, yeah. talking about how they're all descendants of Adam and descendants of yeah. the ten people of Israel. The ten tribes of the Israel. The ten tribes of Israel. So he's kind of like taking his Christian faith, and now that he's getting older, he's relating it back to his native people. So it's kind of cool that he's finding an identity with his native people through the Christianity and the scripture. Which makes perfect sense because he also, earlier in the text, was finding his native identity through his Methodism. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so somebody mentioned this in a post, too, a small mention. It might have been you at the end of your post where you talked a little bit about the Israelite thing. Was it you, Austin? I don't know. Sometimes you don't know fine if you don't remember. But somebody mentioned this too. It's a really weird kind of like theory that's kind of present in the 19th century. There's a footnote about it in the text. The idea here is that a lot of people in the time in which Apis lived believed that native people were the descendants of the Israelites and that they were one of the ten lost tribes that they were actually kind of built up in Israel and then they moved to the North American continent. Right? So yeah, this also allows Apis to think about himself at, in a way that allows him to connect his nativeness to his Christianity. But it's actually not true, right? It was a theory or an idea, right? It's not totally yeah. true, but it's something that people believed in that time, that native peoples were one of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Yeah, so okay, he has this moment where he's like awed by the sublimity and natural wonder of the earth. It's very, very different than how he thinks about the natural world earlier. He gives praise to God for that beauty. He finds faith again in that kind of um, awe-inspiring natural scene. And then, without so much as a period, right? Just a semicolon. After he's looking at that beautiful natural scene and giving all of that beauty and praise to God, he says, I then turned my eyes to the forest, and it seemed alive with its sons and daughters. Very different, again, from the perception that he has of the forest earlier in the text, right? Earlier in the text, the forest is a scary-ass place, where if it's alive with his sons and daughters, it's a bad thing, right? Now, he loves it, right? Now, actually, in terms of the syntax and the sentence construction, he's aligning it with God, right? This is actually a godly and beautiful thing all of these sons and daughters of the forest, all of these native people being in this place. And then he says, there appeared to be the utmost order and regularity in their encampment. Okay, close read time. Let's look for a repetition. Where's the repetition in this language? In this passage, there's repetition. Where is it? Just in the end of the passage. Order and regularity are kind of the same thing. So yeah, order and regularity come up twice. Okay, whenever you're doing a kind of like a literary analysis, whenever you're kind of like digging into the language of the text, if you find that type of repetition, that like is a light bulb moment. 
And it should be like, oh shit, something's happening here. Because of course we know well enough that Apis is a good enough author to like open the fucking thesaurus. Like, right? He could find some other words, right? It's a strategic thing here. He's repeating the words order and regularity over again. Why? The first order and regularity refers to God and to natural beauty. The second order and regularity refers to what? Himself. Mm, kind of, but before we take that interpretive leap, literally on the page, the order and regularity refers to what? Yeah. The Native American people it is with? Yeah, the Native American encampment, the Native society. Right? So the first order and regularity has to do with the beautiful creations of God. The second order and regularity has to do with Native society. Okay? Again, there's a reason why these words are repeated. Why? What's the reason? How might we interpret that repetition? What is he trying to suggest? Yeah. suggesting that natives are godly people, right? He's clearly here aligning his nativeness and the order and regularity of that encampment with his faith and the order and regularity of God's creations, right? He's aligning, again, nativeness and faith, Christian faith here. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting where you even said you refer to them as sons and daughters, even though, um, like, in the Christian faith, like, to be a son and daughter, you have to be a believer, but... I just thought it was interesting how you still like Yeah, and why he's doing that is he's, he's suggesting that even in the absence of something like organized religion or organized Christianity among the natives, they have a society that approaches godliness in its order and regularity and implicitly also in its beauty. Right? So again, what he's suggesting here is that there's no gap. There's no resistance in aligning oneself with one's native identity and one's Christian identity. In fact, they kind of fit hand in glove for Avis in this moment. And of course, that's so profound and so important because everything we've read prior in the reading for today has been Avis questioning that, right? I don't know if I'm a good Christian. I feel like I'm tending towards the devil, right? But he finds in this moment when he's among his brethren in this native society, he finds an order and regularity that makes sense to him. That seems familiar because it's also something that he associates with God, right? The order and regularity of native society is also contrasted really clearly with the disorder of his experiences in the military and the absolute absence of beauty of his experiences in the military. So he finds something here among his brethren that changes things. And by the end, we go to the last slide, right? By the end of this reading of what we read for today, he's actually in a good place again. He says, in the spring, the old gentleman set us making maple syrup, maple sugar. Anybody made maple sugar? Maple syrup? Yeah, it's fun. I have a bunch of maple trees in my yard. We've done it in a couple of years. It's great, great time. But you gotta get so much sap to make. It's a little bit of syrup. It's like 10 gallons of sap makes one gallon of yeah. syrup. But it's beautiful. This took us into the woods, which were vocal with the songs of the birds. It's like, 
fucking the sound of music all of a sudden. Right? This like despondent and dejected text, now like the birds are chirping, and he's like, oh, the forest is alive. Right? All nature seemed to smile and rejoice in the freshness and beauty of spring. My brethren, there they are again, appeared very cheerful on account of its return. Right? So again, he's aligning this idea of like the beauty and power of nature, which he attributes to God, with his brethren. I mean, I quibble with the seasonality of this reference, because as we all know, of course, you make maple syrup in around February, right? And he's talking about, like, the birds chirping and spring approaching, so I think he's, I think he's taking a little bit of authorial license here in terms of the season, but all the same. So he says, in the spring I had good clothes and withal looked very decent, so I thought that I would make another effort to reach my home. In my journey, being in the land of steady habits, I found the people very benevolent and kind. I experienced but very little difficulty on the way. And at last I arrived in safety at the home of my childhood. At first my people looked upon me as one risen from the dead. Interesting reference. Not having heard from me since I left home, being more than four years, they thought I must certainly have died, and the days of mourning had almost passed. Okay. He's found his brethren, he's found his faith again, that gives him the comfort and ability and confidence to go home. When he shows up at home, which is of course aligned with his native identity, biological if not cultural, when he goes home, his family looks upon him as if he is risen from the dead. What's he referencing there? Jesus. Of course he's referencing Jesus, right? Because always in this text, especially in what we've just been reading, his native identity, going home to see his native family, is connected to his Christian identity. And so, yeah, he's kind of talking about himself as if he's Jesus here, which is, you know, eh, maybe a little dicey. But the idea here is he's connecting his faith, his Christian faith, to his native identity. Right? This is a scene that, at least at a superficial level, at a surface level, just talks about his native identity. He's coming together with his native family. Right? But when we read into it, when we think about the cultural connotations of saying that he's risen from the dead, of course, there's also a Christian component. So what we see at the end of what we read for today is all of these moments in the text, all these scenes where he is aligning his Christian identity with his native identity over and over and over and over again in order to suggest that they are not at odds, they are not oppositional to one another, but they're in fact, we might say, mutually constitutive, that like you need both. He needs both in order to feel comfortable in the world. And it's no surprise, of course, that at the end of what we read for today, after he has this more stable sense of identity, right? after he is very firm and he has found his home, right? he says, I had been cheated so often that I determined to have my rights this time and forever after. He's not going to kind of sink back into that pit of despondency. He's not going to be taken advantage of again because he's firm in his identity. Or so he thinks, right? The nature of these texts, as you will soon learn as you read for Friday, is that you keep going over these peaks and valleys. Right? He's going to get into some shit again and he's going to fall away. But then the question, of course, again becomes, what takes him out of that valley again? What brings him back up to a peak? Yeah. Do you think he's like a little bit arrogant in that sense, to like where he feels like he can't be hurt again? He but yet is, he's resilient. He's 
I mean, arrogant maybe, maybe naive. Naive, but like, yeah, that's a better He's word. confident, though. And right. I guess like the point that's being made at the end of what we read for today is that because he is secure now in, in his identity, he has resolved to not be oppressed. Okay. Right? He, he's maybe naive, right? And he maybe learns his lesson a little couple pages later, as you'll, kind of, as you'll soon learn. But in this moment, he is comfortable and secure, right? Because he has found, again, that alignment between his faith and his native identity. Hell yeah! All right, have a good day. Have a good one. Yeah, you too.